0: Welcome back, and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of energy. Hey, everyone. Look. Not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia Net Gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here in Zoomland with Mark Rosano, founder and CEO at C6 Capital Holdings and co-founder of Primary Vision Network. Mark, long time no see. How's everything going this morning? It's good. You know things are going well.
1: The weather's warming up a bit. You know we had a great conversation yesterday talking about all things
0: energy and geopolitics because I mean, yeah. who, there's no shortage of this in this world today. So it's something to talk about. I tell you, man, every time. So, you know, of course I'm subscribed to Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal and Seeking Alpha. And it's just like every day I just, you know, I want to get my breakfast popcorn ready and start reading because there's just so much entertaining information out there all the time. And I want to, you know, again, a big thanks to you for the audience. Mark, you know, humbly offered to take a bit of time out of his day yesterday, which was a Wednesday afternoon to speak to a lot of the folks within our company here at AES Drilling Fluids. Yeah, just to give a take on, you know, some macroeconomics and to get everyone caught up to speed on all things energy, which again tie into just about everything in life. And so again, I really appreciate that. And I just generally appreciate all the content you put out. I mean, you know, your YouTube channel with Primary Vision Network is such a great source of information. You know, being that you're, you know, from New York, I like that I don't even know how you want to, your delivery is, I appreciate that. I I follow a guy on social media, Gary Vaynerchuk, who's also from up there. And I just love the way he articulates his message and story. And, you know, again, with the accent and everything, it's just, you know, it's great. But the content you provide and the accuracy and just how you deliver facts, I think is amazing. And I've talked to a lot of folks down here in Houston that are familiar with your work and you obviously have a great reputation, but What I wanted to do is obviously talk energy, but also to get to know you a little bit. I would imagine you have an interesting story. And, you know, before we started recording, you're like, man, I'm an open book. You want to talk about my mom? We can talk about that. We can talk about my family, my dog, you know. Whatever. Uh, Whatever. (laughs) Everything's on the table. Let's make it interesting. Well, you know, I want to kick things off and ask you I like to kind of open things up with this question, but what core belief have you changed your mind over the last couple of years? And that could be personal, that could be energy, that could be with your family. I mean, is anything sort of going through this crazy COVID pandemic mess has kind of altered your core belief in any way, shape or form? I mean, does anything come to mind? Yeah,
1: it's funny. I actually had this conversation with my wife not that long ago. And it was really when I was going through things because trying to start a company and trying to start all these things in the middle of a pandemic you never do it by yourself. Like She is my like partner in crime. You know, and I've said to her before that you know, when we were looking to get married, I was like, I need someone that's going to be shooting outside the foxhole, not in the foxhole, because the world's a battle. You know, you're always going to go up against different things and your relationship's going to go up and down. So you know, we've really stuck together. And, and I used to be filled with a lot of regret. And I used to be looking at this like, oh, I should have gone to this school. I shouldn't have done this program. I shouldn't have done that. And as I'm holding my, I have three girls. And as I'm holding my oldest daughter, it all went away because I wouldn't be at this moment if it wasn't for everything up to that point. Mm. I think that really changed me. And I really let go of a lot of the regret because you know now it's so easy to be myopic of like oh i shouldn't have taken this job i have this terrible boss but then all of a sudden 3 years later you're like wow i was like i learned how to handle this and handle this and juggle this and all of a sudden you're like that's why i had to go through this and when i looked at my life up to that point from a different lens i was like you know what i don't regret anything like you know it's unfortunate some of the events of my life but I'm happy with how I handled those events and how they shape me. And I think, you know, there's a great book and I've talked about it on different things. It's called David and Goliath. Yes. And it talks about how people handle things and empathy. And, you know, I grew up with a sister, speaking of open book, who has the second rarest disease in the world, fibrodysplasia, ossificans progressiva or FOP. Wow. And it's when muscle and soft tissue turn to bone and that shapes you, you know, she's had this, you know, it came out when she was four and now I'm 37. So she's 32. So no 33, she turned 33 in December. So that's where, you know, you see her struggle, you help her through it. And then my now middle daughter needed massive heart surgery and you know, she died twice on the table, was given a 10% chance of survival. They told us she was going to die that weekend. My partners walked out on me with a hedge fund I was doing. And it's like, you could turn around and regret everything, but then at the same time, how you respond to it and how you pick yourself up, because, you know, as I've always kind of taught myself where you get knocked down nine times, you get up the 10th because the 10th time can be different. And I think losing that regret really honestly was a weight lifted. And now that it wasn't profound because of COVID, but that was, I think a pivotal moment for me when I kind of came into my own on that
0: sense. And I was 28 at the time. So it's been a minute. Man, you've had, I mean, obviously with what you've described, you've had some serious challenges, which again, it's relative, right? Like some people say, oh, that's not bad. You should, you know, this is what I did. And then I'm sitting here with extreme gratification because I've been you know, blessed, whatever you want to call it. I haven't had to gone through some of those things that you have. Now, granted, we've all gone through our own trials and tribulations. Right. But I mean, so do you like obviously perspective, like you mentioned empathy, which I think is, you know, now, you know, that's actually, I've seen that word pop up a little bit more, even with like organizational culture and, you know, CEOs trying to develop a little more empathy than like, say the old school sort of Steve Jobs way of leading people, Mm -hmm. leading with a bit more kindness and empathy. But like for you, do you really try and develop like massive perspective when things are getting knocked down? Because I mean, again, it's not what happens to us. It's how we react to things. And a lot of times it's like here in the US, like we have like, we're delusional with our perspective on Mm -hmm. like having a tough day. But I mean, was there something specific that kind of made you pivot or was it just over time you started developing a little more self-awareness to think, you know what, like I've been dealt these cards. There's nothing I can do about it. Like, here we go. Like, how did you kind of make that
1: shift? And it's interesting because especially... People will say, like, oh, you had it. To me, everyone has a story and nobody's right. story is easier or harder. It's just different. Yeah. And it shapes who you are and how you get to that point. And the one thing that I think was the eye-opening piece was these are the cards. I can't change them, but I'm going to play the best hand I can with what's been given. And when I realized, you know, I have three girls, they're huge daddy's girls, which I love and hopefully that stays the case. But, (laughs) you know, it was kind of that pivot moment where it all came together. And I try to carry that forward with the way I treat people. Like even on Twitter, people joke that I'm Mr. Nice Guy just because, you know, everyone has an opinion. Like I want positive discourse. I want somebody to say, Mark, you're wrong. And here's why it annoys me when people say, Mark, you're wrong. And then there's no. And here's why, like, mm. I live in data, I live in that world. And coming to that point, I had an anger problem, I would lose control at times. And I'm like, you know what, this is foolish. Like, what am I <laughs> doing this for? Why am I getting so worked up
0: yeah. when
1: I can carry some of this positivity forward? And I've tried to carry that on and being with my daughter, when they told us she wasn't going to live through the weekend, <laughs> to me, there's like, nothing will ever meet that point. And right. that's why no matter what I see, it's like, you know what? it can be worse. And Mm. then, you know, you take that and you think like, Oh my God, this is so terrible. But then as you talked about and people like talking to me because they're like, Oh my God, you're not a myopic American. It's like, well, no, I'm not. And like, as you said, we can be so focused inward looking and we lose sight of what is abroad. And I really carry that forward with when I look at food, when I look at water, when like, as we talked about with food and water and droughts yeah. that are increasing because while, and again, I'm not belittling people that are poor in America, it is a terrible thing, but like poor in America and poor in Nigeria are two vastly different things. Neither is better or worse. It's just they're very different. And I think sometimes we lose sight on how many problems we have and how lucky we really are and what we can do with that. And that's how I kind of look at the lens. And as I'm more of a top-down kind of guy that looks at how is the macro playing out? How is the geopolitical? What are generational cycles doing? Are we coming to a friction point or are we coming to a growth period? And that's how I try to uh, shift it. And I always look through it from the eye of, How is the tribal backdrop? Because as much as we want to say there isn't tribal periods, there are, and everybody kind of identifies with one. So it's a matter of seeing how they interact. And then I use that to find where's the patterns? Like, how can we bridge this gap and make money upstream, downstream, you know, and throughout? And really, what is this EV thing, this ESG thing? How can we wrap this in? Because, like, back to the positive discourse, no one has the right answer. Someone might have a piece to the right answer, but nobody has the solution. And I think when you shut people down and you create this echo chamber, you just harden up. And it's like, no, man, it's like, this is a flexible world. Like everything changes. Nobody has a straight line path. Mm. So let's grow. Let's figure this out. And I think that's something that has opened me up based on what I went through in my life, as well as the way I kind of view through a lens on the geopolitical world.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but it's interesting because again, especially going through the pandemic and then, you know, a little bit more, you know, micro here in Texas with regards to last year's freeze. It's like, it's so easy, you know, through observation, it appears that a lot of people will take extremely complex situations. And from my, again, my thoughts are that like things are continuing to get more and more complex with the rate of information being transferred, the evolution of technology. I mean things are changing at such a rapid pace, and they are becoming so and so complex, but yet people will take you know headlines and a little bit of what they know and apply it to such larger problems to which are extremely complex right but then claiming to somewhat you know be self proclaimed experts in their <laughs> fields and it's like Ah, you know, there's like 100 scientists or 100 economists that all have different opinions and they live and breathe this stuff, but yet somehow you're... Somewhat should be credible in some way, and and again, everyone has. I find it very comical, and I think it's you know just human behavior in general. And again, we could go down all sorts of rabbit holes with that. But I appreciate this shift in belief that you've had, and you know perhaps looking at things through a different lens, and and really just like you said, positive discourse. I think it's great, and I'm glad we opened up with that because it's, I think a lot of people will find value and, and hopefully some alignment there. I'm curious, Mark, for you, if you had a Friday night and assuming you had all the resources in the world, whether that's travel, financial resource, whatever the case may be, what would that ideal Friday night look like to you? Anything in the world? <laughs> it's funny because you're going to laugh.
1: When people look at COVID and they look at like, oh my God, I couldn't leave the house. I had to stay with... my wife and I are homebodies. And it's really funny in that sense. Like every Friday we have movie night and my nice. kids, for some reason, I don't know why they discovered microwave popcorn at Mimi and Papa's. So they thought microwave popcorn (laughs) only existed in Rhode Island. So I surprised them by bringing home a gigantic box from BJ's. And they're like, oh, it's in New York too. It's like, yep, it was always (laughs) in New York. It was never just in Rhode Island. So honestly, like we really enjoy movie night and that's something how I spend my Fridays. And sometimes people ask me to come onto these spaces on Twitter and I'm like, it's movie night guys. Like this is 5 p.m. Friday. Like I'm gonna have three girls like crowding around me and my wife sitting there. That's the one thing with the family side. But the one thing that my wife and I we really enjoy is the water. You know, I grew up on Long Island. She grew up in Rhode Island. So we've always enjoyed like a quiet night on the back porch, you know, drinking, you know, me, scotch, her wine, you know, she thinks that brown liquid is disgusting. I think it's delicious. So yeah, to me, yeah. it's candy. So I'm I'm going to be <laughs> drinking that. I'll probably be smoking a cigar and just watching the waves. And nice. that's kind of the something that we're, again, I, I'm not. Someone who likes frills. I'm not gonna go crazy. Like I'm very much like relaxing and just looking at the way the world is moving along, and that's just how it is for me. You know, but I guess as the saying goes, like long walks on the beach, you know, yeah. <laughs> type nonsense. But yeah, yeah, that that
0: is. I'm very much a homebody, family person. Hey, you know what? And I would imagine, mm-hmm. unfortunately, my grandparents and everything passed away at, a, at an early age. But you know, you have older people within your mm-hmm. lives, and so I've asked. You know, in time, you know, what would you have done different? This and that, and no one says I would have worked harder. Everyone says, you know, I thought of doing things and I didn't, or I should have spent more time with my family. And, and it sounds like you've realized that. That, like you said, Friday, because I'm on Twitter too, and I'm more of an observer on Twitter, whereas you know, I post a lot of my content on LinkedIn. But it's just like every time I go on, there's like all of a sudden, you know, there's this big Discord, and there's like a bunch of people in this Twitter Live or whatever they've called yeah. it now, and it's like I could spend every night and every you know, hour of the weekend on these platforms. And it's like, you know, part of me is like, oh, what am I missing out on? Is there good information that can kind of give me a leg up on, you know, going into Monday? And I've just realized there's just too much out there to keep up with. So yeah, you got to set your boundaries and be okay with a little bit of FOMO if it's, you know, some people have it, right? So
1: on that, my wife thinks it's super morbid, but I have what I call the deathbed test. You know, am I going to remember this on my deathbed? Like right before the lights go out, and my life plays before my eyes, what are the moments and events that I'm going to remember? Are you going to remember missing dinner because you you finished an Excel spreadsheet? Given there's deadlines, I'm not saying that there aren't and some things have to get done, but... Anything that's being done at 6 p.m. can either be done the next morning or can be done after the kids go to bed for an hour before you sit down and watch TV with your spouse. Like, I'm very much on the deathbed test. Like, am yeah. I really going to remember this? Is this really going to, like, because I closed this deal today versus tomorrow? And again, I understand there's deadlines and we all can't be so lucky at times. But that is how I've always been kind of driving myself to say, this isn't that important. And I can easily do it when the kids go to sleep or in the morning.
0: I'll get in a little bit early and wrap this up. I love it. No, that's great. I appreciate you sharing that. The deathbed test, I'm going to remember that. It's so morbid, de- it's super morbid. Yeah. I,
1: I, I, no. I get it, but I just, you get the flash. Like, you know, I read the book of the dead from the Tibetans, and everybody has the same experience. So it's, you know, if it was just some random firing as your brain shuts down, it wouldn't be consistent. So that's why it's like, clearly there's something that happens in these last events. I kind of use that to shape the way I view the world in general.
0: Wow. Well, again, it comes back to perspective and to think like that. And again, it helps kind of guide you in these little decisions that you make on a daily basis. And hopefully sort of guides you to the North star, which it sounds like it's your family. And I think that's amazing. So diving a little bit more into your career, you know, obviously now, like you said, you're deep in the data. I mean, geopolitics, you know, markets and commodities and everything. I mean, that's, you live and breathe that stuff. I mean, what was Mark like in high school? Were you a data guy back then? I mean, did you shift? Like, did you come out of high school being like, that's what I want to do? I mean, what were you like in your younger years?
1: So I was always kind of nerdy. My wife, you know, kindly calls me an overachiever. Uh, The way, yeah, I've always been big into geopolitics and the way things interact. And I'm probably logical to a fault because to me everything is connected there's a thing you know if you push on one string a million strings move and then they yeah. move two million strings right so i love the interconnected nature of events and looking at how they unfold and i've always been more of i want to understand and it worked against me in school especially cuz the teachers would some teachers appreciated others didn't <laughs> yeah. i was the but why kid like i was that obnoxious 4 year old that's like but why And the teacher would be like, just memorize it. It's like, but why? Like, why am I learning this? Like, what is the connection into everything? And I probably didn't go well when I had to learn Spanish because I'm just terrible (laughs) at languages. And it's just (laughs) not how my brain works. But I always like to understand why are we doing this? So I've always been... I have to understand the fundamentals, the underlying pieces, because then if I can understand it, I can then teach it to others and I can apply it in different ways where if you just memorize something, you know, it one way where I always found like the best teachers really understood the subject. And if a kid was struggling, they're like, oh, you don't understand it. The way I'm teaching this. Oh, here's another way to explain it. Here's another Mm, way to explain it. Here's because you understand it from the base level. And that's how I've always been. I've always Hmm. been very much of show me the data. Like, I get it. I believe you. It's not because I don't believe you, but show me the data. Like, let's discuss. And then I went to an all-boy Catholic high school, and then I went to a Jesuit school. And and everything that I learned in that time period was question everything. Like, everything is up for interpretation. There is nothing out there that can't be interpreted. And like, you know, you take the Bible for an example. It's like, look, the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes, they're written in stone Nothing can shift them. Everything else, let's talk. And I always thought that was fascinating because it's like, well, I thought this is, you know, just, and they're like, no, let's interpret. Like, and I applied that into a lot of different things. And that's where I really got into the data piece. And then when you talk about, you know, people and the way, you know, media is coming at you and whatnot, I found that the world in general was getting less and less data, more and more narrative. Mm. and opinions. And I'm like, you know what? This is foolish. Like I get it. I want to know what you think, but show me the data on why you think that. And that was how we went about and created the primary vision network because we're like, look, we have all this data, but it's so much. Let's try to break it down as best we can. I'm going to use as simplified terms as I can to explain what I think it means. And I'm going to show you my data. If you disagree with me, that's 100% fine. I hope in the process I taught you something or I made you think of something a bit more critically. Because one of the first things my boss told me, you know, when we were investing, it's like the bus that hurts the most is the one that you don't see coming. Mm. And that's why I try to look at something like if I'm bullish, something I want to find the biggest bear on the street and understand their viewpoint. If I'm the biggest bear, I want to find the biggest bull and understand their viewpoint. And it doesn't mean I'm going to agree, but I want to understand why, like, what am I missing? Like, is there something I'm missing? And there are times where I walk away from the conversation. Wow, that was a really good point. You know what? I still think it's wrong, but I'm not as confident. I'm going to cut my size or I'm going to hedge myself a bit. And I think that's something that is lost in a sense where I'm okay if someone disagrees, but I like having that understanding of, but this is why I disagree. And this is how I'm thinking about it. And then you can get into someone else's shoes and understand how they're going to look at it and how they're going to share that information. I've always been like that. That's something where I credit my sister for, where you always kind of put yourself into someone else's position because- you don't know what it's like to walk a mile in their shoes. Like you don't know what their life experiences are. Like there's some people that are on the ground and I'm talking about retail sales or something else. And they're like, Hey man, like you're wrong. And here's what's happening on the ground. And I love that. Like, I think that's great data points because I'm looking at this on a global level Mm. and maybe it's nice to have some of that on the ground feel.
0: Yeah. It kind of reminds me, you know, you're talking about, you know, if you're the biggest bull, you try to find the biggest bear. I find that that's been a big challenge within You know, again, I'm in the oil and gas upstream space, specifically drilling. Right. Right. And so when everyone, you know, administration goes on there and says we're going to stop fracking this and that. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, I can't believe this and that. And for so long, it's been us against the world. And what I've learned over time is like talking to like, you're going to have extremes on both sides, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of people that are willing to have an open mind to have constructive conversations to think like, I think I'm right. And I think you know, we need to drill we need to frack wells here in the US or just our world's going to implode. However, I'm willing to at least accept some information and perhaps educate myself as to why do you think that wind and solar are going to take over the world? And while I don't agree, perhaps I can educate myself to understand both sides to perhaps come up with a at least a, a stronger position or just accept the fact that, like, maybe I'm not so right, you know, right. like because again, like you said, like. You know no one has a direct line of sight as to exactly what we need to do to solve world problems, mm-hmm. you know, or else you know life would be pretty boring, I think. But you know it's fascinating. And I think the level, like you said, growing up, you're like, you know, but why? And I think it's interesting because as we grow up, you know, especially through our education system, which I think you know there's a lot of good things that come of it, and there's a lot of bad things, but we're always sort of, you know, don't question authority. It's like, here's the answer, and if someone raises their hand, most of the time it's like, don't, you know, there's never a dumb question, but everyone's reaction is like, Oh, that was a dumb question. Right. And so then you're kind of, are like groomed to then, you know, everyone, when you're younger, you raise your hand and like my six-year-old daughter, she'll question me on everything. And mm-hmm. I think it's great. And I encourage it. And one thing that I've realized growing up is like, I find these tendencies in myself and I'm aware of it, but my dad hated being questioned. And I realized he hated being questioned on the things that he didn't quite understand. And so now when, when, and I find myself with like my wife questions me and I kind of get defensive, I realize it's because I don't quite understand my position. And it's like, I've just built this position because of like thoughts, but I don't really have anything to back it up. But when someone questions me on something I'm confident about, I can easily then educate someone or explain it from the base level because I understand it. And I think that's where a lot of folks in, in oil and gas, especially when you question them, they get defensive, but Yet, you know, they don't have a good base understanding of how everything works. And I don't think really everyone does or should. I mean, you you're kind of limited to capacity depending on your experience. But again, just an interesting conversation. I think, you know, like in summarizing all this, I think maintaining a high level of curiosity and somewhat challenging everything to or being, you know, thinking of things a little more critically, super healthy. And again, I think that's, you know, a challenge that us as adults face <laughs> quite regularly, but. But to your point, like, it's all about pride,
1: you know, yeah, sometimes you have to check the pride at the door and say, you know what? I don't have all the answers. And on this topic, I am not the smartest man in the room. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to listen. I'm going to do my own research. And then I'm going to come back with something. And I think that's the hardest thing is checking that pride and be like, you know what? This is going to be an interesting conversation that I may not be able to step in on. And that's where like, whenever, you know, I've been in the energy space and commodity space since I started in the industry and it's so easy to get defensive, but it's like, well, why do you think that? Like, what did you see that you think that fracking is terrible? Like, and then let's talk about why you think that. And we'll go through different pieces. Like, okay, well, what you're saying in terms of let's call it frack ponds and how those were really damaging. It's like, you know what? It's probably true. Like there were probably times that those frack ponds you know, shouldn't have been there or should have been done differently, but this is how we're doing it differently now. Mm-hmm. And that's how we address the situation. Cause I think the biggest misnomer is like people in the energy space don't get into it. Cause they are these evil individuals that hate the outdoors. If anything, energy people love the outdoors, which is why they chose this business because they can be outside all the time. Mm. And I think that there's, I think some of this misnomer, and it's just a matter of, again, just addressing it. Like, let's not just say, oh, well, you're wrong because you're stupid. It's like, well, no, you might have some real fears and let's discuss what those fears are and how they're being addressed. And how are we trying to further that cause to be safer? Because I mean, how many team meetings do you have where they announce, you know, we haven't had an incident in X amount of days. Like that's something to hang your hat on. Like you don't want people to get hurt. You don't want incidences. Like it costs money. I mean, let's be fair. It's also selfish in your own way, where if you have an accident, it probably costs money to fix it, remediate it, whatever, so that, again, there's a the lot that can be discussed and to your point on you know is it wind, solar, as I said in the talk yesterday, it's a basket approach, like why are yeah. we so scared of saying it can be everything with a weighting in different directions, depending on geography, topography, you know what are the needs of the people, like we want to make sure that It's reliable, efficient, and at lowest cost possible. And I think people kind of get away from that idea of what the grid should be.
0: Yeah, no, great point. So I want to pivot here. I have to actually take a pause and I need to highlight some really fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, which is Technip FMC. Their new and integrated iComplete ecosystem is digitally enabled and delivers efficiency benefits by dramatically reducing components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data to operators about the well-pad operations. Technip FMC is continuing to push the limits in order to achieve full frack automation. To discover more about all the benefits I complete, click the link in the show notes or check them out on LinkedIn. So Mark, you know, again, everyone's, you know, right now we're sitting, I don't know, probably 92 bucks a barrel, maybe 91 WTI. I haven't checked this morning, but, you know, headlines, 120, 150, you know, actually, it's funny. I put it on LinkedIn. I generated some sort of energy-based NFTs and I minted them on OpenSea or whatever. But anyway, I said, you know, whoever can guess when oil is going to hit 101 WTI, $101 a barrel, the date and time, I'll gift them this NFT. And it's a picture of an oil drop and whatever. But right. I'm curious when and do you think oil will hit, let's just say $101 brownie? and We're pretty close, but we're kind of like, riding this line with geopolitics. And there's, a—I feel like there's a pretty big fork in the road here, but but what's your outlook on oil prices? So I
1: think that there's a chance we can get there depending, excuse me, how Ukraine, Russia unfolds. When you look at what's happening with Ukraine and Russia, I think that there is going to be a flashpoint. There's way too much equipment and personnel for there to not be some sort of interaction. But I don't think that is the end goal. And I've done shows on why and, and how I think this plays out. So I won't bore everyone with with some of the different backdrops. But I do think that there's going to be an impact. And that's going to be the flashpoint where you're going to see you know WTI run up to 100, 101. And it's just because if Russia moves in, if there's some kind of conflict there, you're going to get sanctions that are going to hit Russia. And if you look at what the U.S. has done, we've sanctioned Venezuela, we've sanctioned Iran, we we would then sanction Russia. And you're looking at taking huge chunks of oil out of essentially ourselves and our allies, and then you're going to have a rush and you know, just to try to replace those barrels. As we saw, David Brent go over $100 already when you look at the different backdrops because, you know, people in europe aren't buying euros like you know do you want to buy something that you may not be able to either sell or refine for god knows how long so you've seen this big pivot now when you look at the longer term i think at least for me going back through my time in the industry there's been recessions before and i think we're going to see a very aggressive one and when you look at central bank tightening what you know everyone was always like don't fight the fed when there was quantitative easing but now they're going to do quantitative tightening and raising rates and everyone's like buying everything. It's like, so now we're going to fight the fed. So let me get this straight before we weren't fighting the fed, but now they're going to reverse course on a global basis and we're going to fight the fed. That's what the mantra is. And I think the call is that they're going to panic. They're not going to be able to do it. But I think when you look at their mandates and what they're trying to do, and then you look back to the seventies, they lost control of rates and they lost control of controlling that rate movement. And I don't think they're willing to do that again. And I think the quote unquote fed put has been moved further down. So I think that on a underlying economic basis, and especially like I was bearish going into the 2020, you saw 2019, a big slowdown 2020, you had an increasing slowdown. Then obviously we had COVID, but then they papered the world again, and it papered over a lot of the problems that have yet to be addressed on a global economic basis. And now I think there's a lot of cracks in that armor that is going to eat into that demand. So while we can talk about supply and supply is a bit easier to track, you know, demand is the fungible piece and demand is the one that I think underperforms. So to me, any kind of movement to that hundred is more of a geopolitical issue. And less about where demand sits at that current time. And that's why I would be looking to go the other way on where that is. I do think that there's a lot of stability in the 70s. I think that there's a lot of reasons we stay there. And then we drift back to that point. But if you think about the 70s, I mean, back in when we were at 40, how many people that you worked with and you talked to would have killed to have 70s? You know, so at the same time, you can't get too greedy when you look at it, especially when, when we're looking at what some of the shifts are, especially when we look at the consumption of liquids, you know, natural gas liquids, you know, condensate, there's going to be some of these moving pieces, especially when you look at, you know, ESG, EV, and the consumption of plastics that goes into that. I think that's going to be a big driver. So there's going to be opportunities even at that subset. But I think that is when you get that move. And I think that would be a quick fade off of that level.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So you mentioned demand. And I think, you know, again, for a long time, there was this discussion and it's come back many times, you know, peak oil, peak oil. But at what point do you think, do you think, we'll? I mean, eventually I would imagine we may hit peak demand, but is it as close? Cause I've heard like, I think Bloomberg intelligence and stuff are saying, and a few other analysts and stuff are saying around 2030, we may hit peak demand what's your outlook and sort of thoughts on peak demand? And are we close? I mean, is that a reality? And do we have enough data and foresight to even try and get a good estimate on when we may reach peak demand? Right. Well, the data and foresight is the answer is no. I mean,
1: mm-hmm. if you think about how many times we were supposed to run out of oil since the 1960s, <laughs> yeah. I, think we're, I think we're on eight. We're yeah. supposed to run out of oil eight different times throughout that period. And then you know prices go up, we get better at technology. Like one of the things that I was Joke about with Americans is what are we great at? We're great at arbitrage and inventing things to arbitrage. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. we find ways to really capture that incremental barrel. So, again, like the Permian was, re, you know, quote unquote, rediscovered. Like we applied new technology to it. And I think that's going to continue to happen. So, I'm not concerned on the longevity of that supply. I think on the demand front, where I differ is one, I don't think we can actually plan, like, oh, this is the day and time that the demand ends. I think it shifts and I think you're seeing it shift now and it's just coming down to breaking it into its pieces. And I think, you know, it's very easy to get a bit lazy and say hundred million barrels of demand. It's like, okay, well, let's get nerdy on what are those hundred million barrels? How much of that is black oil? How much of that is liquids? How much of that is, you know, when you look at the consumption of natural gas and I think on the fossil fuel front, we are far away from the end of demand or demand capping out. Because I think natural gas has a lot to play in the future. And I don't think that's going anywhere fast. When you look at blue hydrogen, when you look at you know any of these simplified terms of growth, it's still on the back of natural gas. And I think we can't ignore that but it's going to increase consumption to the depressed nature of black oil because you're going to get some of that, you know, something was going to be replaced. If I was running diesel on that, can I run natural gas? If I was running diesel on this, can I run propane? And I think you can see more of that pivot, especially as ultra low sulfur diesel, very low sulfur diesel, you know, prices go up as we're seeing, you know, can you adopt more of the liquid side then, when you look at the refining component, you know we have an overcapacity of refiners in the world today, and you're seeing some of those refiners get reutilized, readjusted, but there's still a huge amount of petrochemical demand. And I think when you look at the liquids front, you know ethane, propane, butane, isobutane, you know the different naphthas, There's a lot of growth in there, and I don't see that going away. I see that expanding. Mm. So while I don't think, and again, I'm not saying that black oil demand is going to diminish because I think it just kind of stays here, and then you get the liquids that are going to take hold. But as liquid prices start to diverge, if you will, from oil prices, because typically there's just a certain correlation, you're going to get, oh, well, this stranded wet gas is no longer stranded because I can make money here and i think you're going to get a bit more of a pivot especially as the technology gets modular smaller and all of a sudden instead of costing me you know 100 million dollars to do one small project it's going to cost me 10 million you know instead of costing me 5 billion dollars to build this massive lng facility it's going to cost me 500 million and i think that that economics makes it much easier for this adoption to increase natural gas consumption as well mm. as liquids consumption. And that's going to, I guess, quote unquote, steal demand from that oil, but there's still points of pockets of growth. It's just, mm. as they adopt more on the natural gas liquid side, it's just going to eat into it. So where you think you should be getting demand, you're just kind of maintaining as other places fall off. And that's where I think the growth is now, where do I think the growth ends? I think it's a long way away. I mean, are mm. we talking about 2040? All I can say is that there's a huge failure in recycling. And I think yeah. instead of telling me that I have to have 12 barrels and I have to look in each one, I think we should make the process a bit more you know, user-friendly, if you will. And I think then you could have some adjustments on the process. And so I think we might be focusing on some of the wrong areas on how to clean that up.
0: Interesting. Well, when we talk demand, I always find it interesting having the conversations of, you know, like they can somewhat have a good idea of what demand looks like right now with, you know, developed economies and where we're at. But I always have to consider, you know, between like India and China and a lot of these emerging, you know, areas and even the non-OECD countries, like they're all thriving to get access to energy so that they can, you know, develop themselves. If they do that and get access to, you know, hopefully you know, cheap and reliable energy, the demand for everything and the level of consumption and just produce and everything. Like, I don't know, like, is that being factored into models and all that?
1: I don't think it is in the right way. And, you know, think about like the U S for an example, when we had our industrial revolution, you're going to take the best equipment at that point in time. And if you look at the best equipment right now, is it a natural gas fired component or is it a diesel component? And what is going to be the best growth profile? But one of the reasons why I focus so much on food and fertilizers and water is because we need to also address the basis of life. And everyone's like, oh, well, there's all this demand in Africa. It's like, I agree with you. There is demand in Africa. There was 100%, but there's also supposed to be demand in Africa since the 1960s. And why does it keep failing? Why does, is it not being realized? And I think if you address some of these underlying problems, which is food security, water security, then you can have this expansion. Like right now, if you ask someone that you know, is struggling to feed their family, you know, if they want solar panels on their mud hut and an Escalade or a consistent meal, I can guarantee you they're going to go with the consistent meal. So I think that there's this capacity for growth. Especially, but you know, China, I think, is on the backside of that. But I do think India and Africa are interesting growth points. But how do you address some of the base level problems to unlock that demand? And then when you unlock that demand, where is technology at that moment? You know, does it make sense to have a high sulfur fuel oil generator or short cycle gas turbine? And again, like I'm not an engineer, I don't claim to be, but I've worked with short-cycle gas turbines up close and personal. There's a lot of value there versus some of the high sulfur fuel oil and what that embodies and those problems that are there. So I think that there is a matter of where the demand is. Again, I think that's more on the lighter end of the barrel versus the heavier side.
0: Interesting. That's a good response. I mean, and again, there's so many different avenues we could go down on that front, (laughs) but in the interest of time, I certainly want to try and keep it on the tracks here. So- I want to ask a little bit more on the personal, on the business side of things for you, you know, like i mentioned earlier, C6 Capital and, you know, obviously primary vision network, but with C6 Capital, what is it that you do within that firm or in that company? And what is it that you guys are offering currently? Sure. So we do
1: consulting services. So we're brought in by different governments and companies to be economic advisory type stuff, you know, where, if you're a country that wants to create, you know, uh, capture carbon, let's for an example, just a big one right now what are you doing with it? Like, okay, it sounds great. And everyone wants to sequester it, but it's like, okay, well, this is a viable product. Like, what are we sequestering? Like, can we create an industrial gas? Is there a demand for an industrial product where we can actually create something internally where, you know, I take the flue gas from here and then I send it over. And now I can turn this into nitrogen, methanol, you know, hydrogen, depending on what it is and creating some of that cycle. So that's one piece another piece is corporate planning you know looking forward trying to understand where things are people like to talk about my views on oil but we were very good at where rates are going to be where inflation is where labor is supply chain and we've helped people understand like look you know yes oil prices are going to go up obviously they've run further than i thought they were going to go but we were like but you know labor costs are going to go up too so you have to plan for that accordingly and that's something that we've been doing and then we also have a private equity fund, and so the private equity fund, the fund one, is thirty million. And again, practice what you preach. So my view is we have a basket approach. We are investing in base load capacity that can be from hydro. You know, we're just actually today closing on three hydro dams. Nice. Uh, we're, we're thank you. It's, it's a <laughs> long time coming, but we're we're looking at again base load capacity. How are we going to be the solution? to the problem. And it's, I'm going to buy underutilized hydroelectric dams and upgrade them and create a product that is not only environmentally friendly, depending on who you ask, But also increases capacity and baseload capacity. And then we're investing in different technologies along the lines of fertilizers, grains, as well as capturing some of these products and repurposing them. So that's our kind of mandate right now. And 30 million, because again, who am I? Like most people that are gonna listen to this have no idea who I am. So let me prove it to you: like I'm 30 million. 2% is not going to make anybody rich on 30 million. That's just not the way we're operating. You know, and people go out there, raise 2 billion and okay, 2% of 2 billion, I don't have to perform and it'll be fine. But we're taking that basket approach where we are looking at LNG. We are looking at LPG. So Mm. in the short term, it's worked against us because even though we are investing in some ESG type projects, I am not an ESG fund. Because if somebody comes to me and says, I have a great LNG product, I'm going to be like, I'm going to listen to your product and I want to hear what you're talking about. Like somebody says, I want to build some LPG offtake. It's like, okay, let's talk LPG offtake. Because again, I think it's a basket approach and I address it as such. Mm. And that's how we're investing. We have some good relationships with several governments. So again, invest in the technology, invest in some of these more startups and then use fund too. Which will hopefully be five hundred million, based on some of the requests from potential investors, and then there we will get bigger and more involved further downstream. But again, you know, walk before you can run. You know, and that well, I should say, crawl before you can walk, walk before you can run, type thing. And that's what we're looking yeah. to do on the fund side.
0: Oh, that's exciting, man! So, what would you say the vision is for C Six Capital, or what would you ultimately? What is the end goal for you guys there?
1: Sure. So the end goal is to try to streamline operations. So one of the things when I first started in the industry was I hated how everything was so siloed. You know, why is the EMP guy not talking to the pet chem guy? Like they sell products into one. Like, why are we separate? Like, why are we saying different things? Like they should get in a room together. And the idea was trying to knock down those walls and show that you can have a basket approach. Like when I was in the UAE and we were doing short cycle gas turbines, wind, solar, geothermal. We're like, let's figure out how to make this work. Like, is it going to be 60% short cycle and 30% you know, solar? Maybe. Let's figure it out. Let's see what... And I've always kind of taken that to the end degree. And ideally, it is having a basket of funds that will be, again, showing what we're doing. Like, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It can be a mixture of both. And you can make money. Oh, and by the way, I can make money for investors. And I can show you that these products that are ESG friendly or carbon neutral or low carbon can actually make money. Like, I'm not going to be this guy that's going to take government subsidies and crush it, you know, leaving that famous person out of the conversation. But, you know, Musk, I'll just say Musk, you know, that guy. So if you look at like, we want to show like, look, we can do this. We can create an ecosystem. And then we want to be able to replicate it. And the one thing, like I've been investing in LNG since you know we were going to import it. And I was in the Middle East talking about expansion in, in Qatar. And mm. it's like, it's gotten cheaper. It's gotten smaller. It's gotten modular. And I think we ignore some of these great innovations. And I want to take that and adopt it. And I think you need to educate people in terms of, look, natural gas is a great solution. If you're worried about methane, there are methane counters. There are sensors. We can do this and be good stewards of the environment and still make money. And I don't need the government to pay me to do so.
0: Right, right. No, I mean, again, that's fascinating. And so when did you, because you were, and again, I I don't obviously know your whole career path, but when did you start C6 and was it more to scratch your own itch or did you just see, you know, opportunity that, you know, was there, how did you really kind of get started with them?
1: So I've always been in the hedge fund world and the buy side side of the equation. And then when I made a call in October of 14, that OPEC was dead, there was going to be a massive price war and it played out. A friend of mine said, look, that was a great call. Come with me. I'll teach you high yield distress debt and we'll take this down the bottom of the curve. And we'll we'll go into bankruptcies uh, with things like we'll restructure, we'll go down these fun avenues. And that excited me. That was something I had never done that side of the business. Like I had done FX rates, commodities, but I'd never done the high yield distress debt. And I really, hmm. I thought it was very interesting. And I thought there was a lot of opportunities seeing a lot of this. I came out, I wanted to start a hedge fund because that was what I knew. Things were going well. Then obviously my daughter happened. I had to shut that down. But when I looked to reemerge, I was like, you know what? The public markets kind of suck. Like I don't really understand what's happening. There's a ton of liquidity. I was like, there's no real growth. I'm like, you know, I want to be in something that I can understand. And when I looked at the private markets, everybody wants to be big. Everybody wants to cut a $600 million check and make a splash. And I was seeing these great opportunities that were, you know, 500,000, 5 million, you know, in this range. That were really interesting solutions that were proven out. They had the IP, they had the proof of concept, and they needed money to expand. And I'm like, why is nobody giving this guy money? Like, everyone wants to invest in Amazon after it's become a unicorn and worth a billion. But yeah. you know, who was investing in him when he was in his garage? And I'm like, I want to find the things that are not quite the garage stage. But you know, have bought a small facility and are throwing off you know five thousand tons of their product, and they want to grow to one hundred and fifty thousand tons. That is really interesting, and we've kind of left that behind again. Like bigger is better, all of this nonsense. So we saw this opportunity, and then through this process, you know, speaking on the hydro side, we saw obviously everyone loves to hate on natural gas, so we can't make natural gas. We're shutting down solar. We're shutting down coal. We're putting solar and wind up. And then I'm looking at this, I'm like, okay, well, I understand interruptible contracts. And so if there's a really bad problem and the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining, well, that peaker's not going to turn on. And then what? And that was when, and obviously, as you talked about, Texas happened. And what the call that we made in 2019 came to fruition because the base of our call was We need more baseload capacity. We need new types of fertilizers to rejuvenate the soil, repair the soil and grow better crops. And those were the kind of the basis of what we were looking at. And then that expanded into, you know, taking some of this carbon and some of this flue gas and turning it into something useful. So along those lines, but just on the hydro side, because we're closing on it, you know, we looked at this and said, okay, 65% of the country's hydro dams are either owned by mom and pops and small entities. And it's like, all right, well, a lot of these are coming up for FERC relicensing. Again, we were built on the back of water power as we came over because it was run a river. And there's a lot of good assets that are in place. They've been hooked up for years. They've been running for some of these things that we've seen have been running since the 1890s. They've been upgraded. Don't get me wrong. But they're there. And, And I think there was a lot of opportunity to step in high grade them, you know, put some of this and increase throughput by 15%. And to meet this little thing called, you know, demand, as we have electrification mandates, you know, everyone wants an EV and a charging station. I mean, I I make the joke where I feel like at some point, our socks are going to have microchips in it, then we're gonna have to charge them (laughs) overnight. So it's like, okay, yeah, but who's feeding the beast? (laughs) We need to feed the beast and we need to make it, you know, affordable. And there's a big shortfall. So we wanted to Again, we're not buying the Hoover Dam. Like none of these are billions. They're anywhere from 500,000 to 5 million, 8 million. And they just are strong performers at 25% returns unlevered.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned just demand and electricity and it's, you know, the whole electrify everything movement. I mean, you know, the amount of infrastructure and supply that we're going to have to come up with, it's going to have to come from everywhere. You know what I mean? And so, you know, it's, I'd laugh when you say, you know, microchips and charging your socks. I don't know how many devices I have to charge on a daily basis now. It's just, it's insane. And we haven't even had mass deployment of EVs. And again, just through my speculation, I think it's coming. I mean, you look at all these vehicle manufacturers and, you know, what California is doing with regards to, you know, eliminating ICE vehicles, mm-hmm. the purchasing, blah, 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 blah. Everyone's heard it. Yeah. It's going to have to, I mean, regardless, it's just, we're going to have to spend a bunch of money. On Not even that, but just like the grid, smart grids, and figuring out how to like actually get it to a point where we can plug in all these vehicles and everything else that we 're about to plug in here over the next ten years so that 's really interesting. I studied a little bit of hydro stuff in graduate school, but again, it was just such a small piece of the puzzle that hasn 't really moved like there 's been a little bit of hype here and there, but there hasn 't really been mass investment in the hydro space in Canada. you know I grew up in british columbia there 's lots of hydro. And actually, I think they shut it down, but Chevron was in the process of building an LNG plant in Vancouver just out of Kitimat. And they were going to be the first LNG facility fully ran on hydroelectricity, which I thought was super cool. But I think since then, due to the market and a few other things, I think they've put that on hold or maybe pulled out. I don't remember the details, but you know, again, I find it interesting, the hydro space. And I think that's, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit and you know, maybe it's not low hanging fruit, but it just sounds like you said 65% are owned by mom and pops. I thought that was yep. an interesting stat. huh?
1: It was shocking when we really found out how some of the small hydro, because think about it, like you come to this country, you build a textile facility. Well, you were going to build a small hydro plant for it. Or so a lot of the facilities have gone abroad or shut down or in the process of shutting down. But the family who built the facility, owned the land, have this dam that they just, you know, it's thrown off cash. Why not? It's just in the family. And now they're coming up to FERC relicensing. How many people even know what FERC stands for? And that becomes an opportunity. But, you know, to your point on some of the issues with hydro, like I actually didn't like hydro from the very beginning because of some of the environmental hurdles that you were going to come up against versus fish migration, you know, sediment buildup. You know, what happens, which is why we're very much focused on we're diversifying based on location to make sure that droughts aren't going to be a huge issue. And if there's a drought in one location, it won't be in another. But also, you know, what is the environmental impact? Like, am I going to have to worry about sediment buildup? Am I going to have to worry about, you know, one of the reasons why we're looking at run of river, but also fish? You know, what is happening with fish migration? Because we've realized our errors when you look at the West Coast and salmon, and then you look at the Atlantic salmon sturgeon you know so you have to kind of weigh the two and i think using some of these integrated assets that have been there for a long time you know we weren't exactly the best at manufacturing in the 60s and 70s and we put a lot of garbage into the streams but over time things heal and a lot of that really bad sediment has been buried by good stuff and ecosystems have reformed so they also don't want to have to worry about taking that sediment and again cleaning it and putting it back in So it works both where we can generate electricity, we can meet a demand, we're doing it with what's in place. So we generate wrecks for whatever that's worth. And we provide a solution and continue to be good stewards of the environment while doing so.
0: Awesome. Well, I definitely look forward to kind of following along your journey. And man, this has been a fantastic conversation. I hope the listeners enjoyed it just as much as I did. But, and what we'll do is we'll put links in the show notes, you know, obviously to a primary vision network and a few other things, but I mean, what's the best place for folks to reach out, you know, whether they have questions or just want to learn more about some of the things we've talked about today.
1: Absolutely. I'm always on Twitter for better or worse. So it's at Mark FNY. Twitter is a special place and I do love it. So it is good. But at Mark F N Y, you can find me on LinkedIn under my name. And then you can email me at M R O S S A N O at C6 Capital Holdings.com. And I'm always happy to share information, you know, have conversations and you know look to grow.
0: Awesome. Well, again, for the folks out there, appreciate all the support. Thanks for listening. Share this episode with anyone who's interested in what we discussed today. I encourage you to follow Mark on the social platforms and especially subscribe to Primary Vision Network. There's so much good information. And instead of having to comb through a bunch of data and different websites, it's kind of your one-stop shop to keep up with everything. I just absolutely love it. So again, thanks again for listening today. And for all the listeners, always remember when the density is up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.